Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about how I was writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're discussing strategies to cope with the difficulties of sustaining a career as a TV writer. What are the practical realities of our jobs? What are the solutions we found to be helpful? And how do you outwit, outplay, and outlast in the entertainment industry? It's time for Survivor Hollywood. So let's get into it. Now, we've wanted to actually do this episode for a while. It was actually one of the very first ideas we had when we started the podcast way back in 2016. But we had sort of put it off for various reasons, maybe feeling like, oh, it wasn't the right time just yet. But uh, with the, the state of the world recently and a lot of the things going on, this is a good time to have a check in with everybody and talk about how we make it through everything. Yeah, I definitely agree. Even before the pandemic, I mean, we all know how difficult this industry, this entertainment industry is for everyone, whether you're first starting out, or even if you are quote-unquote established. And so it really made sense now more than ever at the point where we're all isolated quite literally to do this episode. So this is going to be an interesting discussion on everything around surviving in Hollywood. Some of those things we've sort of covered in uh, prior episodes. Again, we've done 200 episodes. So at this point, some of it is going to be overlapped. However, this is much more of a look on the practical realities, but also the emotional and mental toll that this industry can have on you. Yeah. Uh, one of our goals here is to really kind of demystify life and a career as a writer. And that's been one of the goals of the, the whole podcast. But here we're getting down to the bare bones of what that really means, even if it's perhaps a little bit scary or uh, unsettling to think about. So the first thing uh, we wanted to cover was the concept of breaking in. I mean, that's everybody's goal. That's another reason why we started this podcast is to help people with that process. But I guess the main thing we want to point out here is that once you have broken in, once you've done all of that hard work to finally get your foot in the door, get your first job, get your first manager and whatever, that's just the beginning. There's so much more to do from there. And once you've broken in, it doesn't mean that you get to stay in automatically for the rest of your career. Right. And even the idea of breaking in is relatively nebulous. Because in my mind, breaking in is not a binary state like uh, you're in or you're out. I think that's a relatively toxic mentality overall. And even though we use it as a shorthand, obviously in our podcast, we talk about breaking in as a TV writer and so forth. And even if you could, devil's advocate here, you could say that being staffed on a network television show is some sort of goalpost for people to say, hey, I've made it or something like that. But realistically, that's only one point on the graph. It's not a career. It's one piece. 
And so you really have to think about the idea of being a TV writer or any sort of creative endeavor as a journey. We've used this word a lot holistically. I love that word because it looks at the entirety of it. And so that's the way you should be looking at your career or journey as a television writer, as a screenwriter and so forth. It's not you're in or you're out. It's how do you build the steps to get you to the next place? Yeah, exactly. And to go back to that old kind of truism and adage, it is about the journey and not about the destination. <laughs> because if you are constantly focused on whatever step you're trying to get to next in your career, you're not going to stop and enjoy uh, the success you've had along the way. And you're going to naturally kind of minimize that and say, oh, I haven't done enough or I haven't, this person's done more than me. So like Alex said, it really is about learning to accept that the journey is your career. Right. And on that point, let's take a look at something they can practically do. And that is to realize that some things you can control and others you cannot. And really your focus, whether you're working in or established and so forth, is to only focus on the things you can control. And there are plenty of things, as we'll talk about in this podcast, of things you can actually control and take ownership over. An obvious example is obviously your own writing, your own scripts, the own relationships. How do you build those relationships? Now, the things you cannot control is people that dislike you or relationships that fade away or people not responding to your material and, and things like that. So that's why you can't really disparage yourself over negative responses that you can't control as opposed to doubling down on the things that you can control and look forward to. Yeah, exactly. I think it's equally as important to understand those things that are out of your hands so that you don't spend so much time stressing about them and just realize that, yes, uh, in addition to skill and effort and persistence, there is a lot of luck and timing and coincidence that also goes into people getting jobs in this career. It's not just a, a random lottery where people are chosen out of nowhere. You can influence uh, you know, your preparedness for those things, but sometimes things are going to go your way and sometimes they aren't, and that's okay. Yeah, that's actually a great point here to focus on in regards to luck and timing. I like to have an equation that is akin to luck equals timing meets preparation. In other words, you can't really predict when an opportunity is going to open, when, for example, X show is going to be looking for a staff writer who is like you. However, you can be prepared when that opportunity strikes by having relevant samples, by having relevant relationships to that show, by understanding who you are as a writer, how you can pitch yourself in the room and so forth. And so being prepared for that opportunity, for that timing, for that quote unquote luck is luck. It's you generating that luck. Now, obviously the true randomness is whether or not you will have access to those opportunities. And uh, I'm sure we can talk ad nauseum about access to opportunities and barriers of entry here. But nonetheless, I think it's important to realize that not everything is luck. And at the same time, not everything is about preparation. It's about a combination of both. Yeah. So one of the things really important for people to understand when you're looking for a career as a TV writer or feature writer or any kind of creative for that matter, is that you will naturally have inconsistent work throughout your life and your career. It is naturally sort of a freelancing type job where you go contract to contract. It's very rare that you get a full-time job with benefits as an in-house writer somewhere for 20, 30, 40 years and retire happy. Unfortunately, that's just not the way our industry works and there are positives and negatives to that. But it's very important to realize that you are probably not going to be earning 
money the whole year round. Yeah. I mean, looking back at one of the reasons why I wanted to be a television writer beyond the obvious, you know, creative reasons and so forth is that especially at the time, I believed that TV writing, unlike say screenwriting was a more office job type work where you would have a sustaining schedule. You would clock in and clock out. And to some extent that was the way it was. And, uh, and to some extent, even now some shows are like that, but overall, I mean, what was true 10 years ago is not quite quite true now, where most shows are not 22 episode seasons where you work, you know, 10 months out of the year and you have that relatively stable schedule and you can expect uh, that next gig and the next episode and so forth. Most shows now are not that networky schedule. There are more cable type development. They're more akin to feature writing almost, where you spend X amount of time developing that season and maybe production overlaps, maybe it does not. But nonetheless, you have to wonder when your next gig is going to happen. And so you have to be cognizant of that seasonality of being a TV artist, especially if your goal is not necessarily to be on a quote unquote network show, but more cably, uh, more RTT and so forth. Those positions only last a few months uh, out of the year. And so you got to be very aware of those things. Yeah, exactly. Working as a writer is by its nature, feast and famine. There's going to be some times where you are ecstatic because you've just booked a really great job and you know that for the next little while, uh, you're going to be earning a decent amount of money and you're going to be doing creative stuff that you love. But and then there's always the knowledge that right around the corner from there, who knows what could happen next. It doesn't mean that your show is going to get another season. Uh, you don't know that you're going to jump right onto another show in the break between these theoretical seasons, anything like that. Uh, in the moments that you're celebrating, you also have that fear in the back of your mind of what is next. Right. And that's even to the point when you're staffed. Again, even though the job may have the appearance of an office job, the reality, as Nick mentioned, is that feast and famine. We are still in a freelance model. We are still pitching ourselves to be on the next show and the next show and hope that we get a next gig or we can sell that pilot or we can get staffed or X, Y, and Z that we're doing. It's not a constant flow of work. And maybe, hopefully, the goal is to get to that flow where you get constant work and callbacks and maybe that's towards the mid-level and upper level of uh, you know the TV ladder. But realistically, when you're anywhere but the middle or the top of the pack, you will be still a freelancer. And so those are uh, the kinds of roadblocks that you gotta be aware of, especially when you're first starting out. Right. And so if you want to have any semblance of uh, continual work or opportunities that are enough to sustain you, you need to always be hustling. You can never really stop and rest on your laurels. And, uh, you know, although you should take time to enjoy things, but you can't just sort of work the full 20 weeks to the end of your job and then only start thinking, okay, what can I do next? You need to have already been planting those seeds, working on other things, having things in development, tracking other shows, putting yourself out there, taking meetings, even while you are working on that show so that you can have the next thing ready once that job is over. Right. And to be clear, that doesn't mean you should do one instead of the other. And also that doesn't mean you should double up on the same thing. So for example, if you're staffed on a one hour drama and maybe it's your first staff staffing gig, your priority should be that staffing gig. Your priority should be focusing on the work at hand and doing good job there. But that doesn't stop you from thinking in the back of your mind, okay, once this wraps or uh, once I'm done from script and so forth, maybe I can brainstorm other projects. Maybe I can do a feature instead of a pilot uh, because I've got some exclusivity deal with non-compete clause that doesn't allow me to do TV work while I'm working on the show. So I'm going to do a feature. And a feature also doesn't necessarily use the same muscles as being 
your staff harder in the room. So there's ways of still hustling and working on different areas of your career without compromising the specific one that you're using at the moment. Yeah. And so much of your uh, your opportunities as a writer come through word of mouth, come through established relationships of people you've worked with who will vouch for you and recommend you. So you need to be very aware of that in the jobs you're working. Like Alex said, you obviously can't be phoning it in at the job that you have just because you know you have a contract. You need to make the best possible impression on those people, especially if it's your first job or second job, so that they will hire you again, whether that's for the next season, whether it's picking up the extension of your contract for the second half of the season, or whether it's recommending you to other people who might hire you next year or next, whenever you're looking for that next gig. You really need to be very careful because theoretically, any job could be your last if you mess it up. Right. Well, on that note, let's look at ways of sustaining that career. What are some ideas that we found for ourselves and, and friends of ours in terms of sustaining their career and uh, diversifying our opportunities. Yeah, I think a lot of us, when we come into um, TV writing and wanting to be a TV writer, are very focused on that idea. We know exactly what it is we want to be and what we want to do. And in fact, we have encouraged that on this podcast to know your brand, to know that you want to specifically write for our long sci-fi TV series on cable. And that's awesome. At the same time, you also need to realize that there's not always going to be an available job or opportunity in exactly that space at exactly the time that you need it. So you need to also be thinking, what else can I do? What else am I happy to do? What else do I have the skills and the opportunities before me to do in order to continue to pay my bills? You're not always going to take your dream job every single time. Absolutely. And uh, that's why personally, I love working on different projects that aren't literally writing my next pilot or my next sample. It's again about using other areas of expertise that I can learn from or other courses or classes that I can uh, dig into. And that's not just because I love learning and uh, that's a form of procrastination somehow, but also because I can use those skills in different areas. So you have multiple marketable skills at your fingertip, hopefully. And if you don't, you should look into those because in those gap years, in those gap months between shows, between areas of employment, you should be looking at other forms of employment. And that doesn't negate the TV work or the writing work or the entertainment work you're doing. In fact, some of it can be definitely complementary, but it can also be something different to exercise. And maybe as you learn one area that's completely irrelevant to the entertainment industry, you realize, oh wait, this is actually a super compelling story or world that I can then inject into one of my samples and, uh, and one thing feeds into the other. And so that's one thing I feel like I definitely agree that you should definitely diversify your options, diversify your skill sets, and look at other ways of uh, making not just money, but also improving yourself as a person. Yeah, I think a big part of this is kind of burying your ego a little bit and trying not to have an ego about the fact that you've been lucky enough to step into that first staff writer job, and now it's over 10 to 20 weeks later, and you don't know what's next. It can be years before your next job. Potentially, a lot of people takes 6, 12, 24 months it can take any amount of time before you get that next gig back in the room or whatever it may be for you. So you need to have an idea of what else you can be doing in order to survive in the meantime. And that's not necessarily just going to be another writing job of exactly what you want to be doing. So like Alex said, if you have other skills, things that you have learned, experiences you've had on your way up to getting where you are, then put those to use, whether it's full time or freelance or for friends or for companies, whatever it happened to be. If you know how to be a video editor or a production coordinator or a creative exec, or if you're really good at 
it, script reading and coverage, tutoring, marketing, admin, whatever it is. There are a lot of other skills that are kind of built into our careers that you will naturally be able to apply to other positions. And you've probably had some experience in before that you can use for that. Absolutely. And, and again, at the point where you're tailoring your resume and submitting to positions, then you can choose to opt those things out of uh, that resume. But nonetheless, you have that experience. You can, if you want to, highlight that marketing or digital marketing experience that you have. And maybe, who knows, maybe the showrunner is looking for that, especially, let's say you're a writer's assistant, right? And you have the ability to do digital marketing. Now, obviously, the show will have its own, you know, <laughs> digital marketing agency or whatever through the network and the studio and so forth. But nonetheless, within the scope of the show, it is still relevant sometimes to have, for example, a social media presence. Maybe, you know, we have a lot of writer's room Twitters. And so if you have that very specific skill set that you bring to the table, then maybe being a writer's assistant will be even more worthwhile, or rather hiring you as the writer's assistant will be more worthwhile for that showrunner because of that backdrop that you have. Or video editing is another example. There's plenty of things that you just don't know what people need until you put them on your resume or you ask. And so having that different skill set on the table is very worthwhile, even in the concept of a TV artist room. Yeah. A lot of people dread this kind of step back into being an assistant. Again, if that's the way that you broke into writing in the first place or working in production or working in a coffee shop, whatever it happens to be, I think a lot of people feel like that is a failure. They have come this far in their career and they finally made it. And there's no way in hell they're going to go back and do that again. I think you need to be careful about thinking that, you know, no one is going to kind of judge you and write you off. There's not a bunch of writers who are going to be like, oh, wow, this person got a staff job and then they had to go back and be a writer's assistant again for a season. No way I'm ever hiring them. They're clearly not good enough. That's, that's not what people are thinking. It's way more common than you think. I've done it myself. In between uh, my first staff writer job, I went back and worked in production for a little while too. And while it might not be something that you necessarily enjoy or, or want to be there doing the whole time, you're paying your bills. You are perhaps learning things that you can then apply to your career. And you're doing what you need to do to get to that next writing job. Yeah. And I think that's actually a very important thing to highlight here, that whole step back maneuver. Uh, because on one hand, people, I think, are afraid of it because of their ego. They feel they are owed to be this level of the career from now on. And maybe you're right. Maybe in some way you should be that level and up. That should be the way progress is made, careers are built, and so forth. However, we live in an unfair world, an unfair reality, and that step back, that need to double up on a specific level or to regress to an assistant position and so forth is the reality we live in. There's so much demand for those positions now that it will be almost impossible for people, maybe not impossible, I would say like 80% unlikely for you to never have to do that again. And I've done it like Nick, and we've seen it even with our friends or people around us. And that's just the way it is. Maybe 10 years years ago, that wasn't the case. But now that is more the case than it's ever been. And I think personally, I believe that will continue to happen until, let's say, the guild steps in or there's other opportunities in different ways. But that's just the reality that we are living in right now. So you have to be aware that you're not necessarily owed anything because you've attained a certain arbitrary level of your career. You have 
to still make money, you still have to build relationships and so forth and help people. And there's no shame really in checking that ego at the door and doing that assistant job because through that job, you will make other relationships and who knows where those lead. Maybe the person you're assisting in that different way will get a new shoe on the air and they will hire you, obviously not as their assistant, but as a staff writer. Or maybe you can negotiate a bump up because before then you were a staff writer and so forth. So there's ways of maneuvering this step back without it negating the progress that you've made in your career. Yeah. So all of this, I think, is why it's so important to diversify your options. You want to have multiple valid things you can be doing to earn a career when you're not doing exactly what it is you want to do in your dream job. And I think part of this is kind of following your momentum, which brings us to a really great Twitter thread from one of our former guests, Julia Yorks, who talked about a little bit of her experience with that. Uh, Julia says, the entertainment industry is a game of following your momentum. She wanted to be an actress, then she got attention for writing. She wanted to write comedy features, then got staffed in animation. Then she wanted to write genre shows, and now she's working almost exclusively in features. So go where the work takes you. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating way of looking at it. And as we mentioned even at the top of this episode, we've always talked about branding yourself and really understanding where your niche is. But if you find opportunities elsewhere, and if people are requesting more of X that you're doing, then you should double down on those things. And that's just one way of defining your brand, especially if you are not necessarily aware of what kind of writer or creative you want to be. And I think Julia York is a great example of someone who she saw the opportunities that were being open in front of her. And uh, instead of uh, lifting her nose and saying, oh, actually, I'm this kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. She was malleable enough to adjust and a pivot, as Ross would say, into those opportunities and follow that momentum, as she says. Yeah, exactly. And this might sound like we're giving contradictory advice to our usual thing about knowing your brand and doing the work you want to do. But at the same time, this is what we're talking about when we say everybody has a different path. There's no one way to go about it. And very often you can get to the place that you ultimately want to be by going through these kind of adjacent areas and these related skill sets and uh, places that you can work in. And that's much better than just sort of sitting there insisting, no, I must do this one one thing and uh, never having anything happen for you. Exactly. And, and to be clear, I actually don't believe that the, this whole idea of following your momentum disagrees with our idea of knowing your brand and what you want to write, because you can still do those things and still follow that momentum. And then retroactively, if you are in front of an executive and trying to justify, you know, this complete switch in a career or different gigs, you can figure out a way to give your own narrative, your own perspective on why this whole story happened, why you switch careers or blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure Julia has that example. In fact, if you listen to her episode, I'm sure she talked about a version of that. And whatever version of that is to you is your own story. It's your own reasons for that momentum. You're not going to be saying, oh, well, uh, there's this job that opened and I needed the money, so I took it. That's obviously not a compelling story. But whatever your own brand, your own story is, you will be figuring that out because you live lived it. You know it better than us. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I believe they're complementary. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I've spent time in my career between being a writer and between being a creative executive. And to some people that might seem like two very different jobs. It might seem like, well, one is the executive path and you're going to be the president of a studio one day and the other one is a writer and you want to be a showrunner, but not necessarily. I think that there's so much overlap between those two things and those understand, you know, they're both two sides of a coin and that you kind of get understanding of each side 
side of the process from where you are. And they can be combined because one day I would love to run my own production company. I'd love to be someone who is running my own shows and creating things, but also is able to be a creative producer and bring in other great writers and projects and do that kind of thing in the same way that Jordan Peele or Judd Apatow or Amy Poehler does. So to me, those two career paths aren't separate at all. They are both learning the fundamental skills that are necessary for me to one day get to the goal that I want to have. Right. And even the experience that you just mentioned is valuable experience in the room. Because if you have that executive quote unquote baggage or that executive background and experience, you can bring that to the room. And I'm sure most people in the room do not have that experience. And that's something that hopefully the showrunner can realize they need or they want and so forth. And in fact, on my last show, one of the writers was a former network, top network executive, in fact. And she got her job as writer and, and moved up the rank, not because of, you know, being an executive. In fact, she had to start again back to square one. But nonetheless, she moved up the ladder because of how good she was and how valuable she was in the room. And so those are the skill sets that you bring to the table that, again, do not uh, negate the career path that you're following. In fact, all this is just adding on even more reasons to hire you, even more reasons why you should break in or follow that path. All right. So we've looked a bit about the sort of the practical realities on ways of sustaining your career, pivoting, diversifying your options and so forth. But let's look at more the financial realities of being a TV writer or breaking in. Yeah. So I think there's this perception sometimes that uh, being a writer in Hollywood has a very glamorous job and you get paid millions of dollars because, you know, we see these big articles about people receiving multi-million dollar overall deals or selling some movie to a top studio or whatever, perhaps a little bit more back in the 90s than today. But the reality of that is writers actually don't get paid as much as you would think from looking at all of that glitz and glamour and the top 1% of writers who are doing these gigantic studio projects, especially in the early days when you're breaking in, once you take out taxes, your fees, your agent, manager, lawyer, and you average it out over the year when you've maybe worked 20 weeks in a room, sometimes you end up earning pretty close to maybe what you were making before on an assistant job or a teeny little bit more if you're lucky. Yes. And that's especially true for those lower level positions, including staff writer positions, because those staff writer positions are paid weekly salaries. And that weekly salary is obviously against certain amount of time. Uh, it's not really, you know, your long job, as we said before, and that perception of uh, people making easy money in, for example, television and so forth, I think really stems from the perception that every show is kind of like a network show. And that might be true for the upper half of, uh, you know, those uh, network shows. If you're a producer like Dick Wolf, yes, you will be rich. But that's one person out of however many people work on all of the shows. And if you're a showrunner, maybe obviously you, you'll make more money. But anywhere beyond or below rather mid-level does not get that much money. Maybe compared to an assistant, but you have to be realistic about all the money that you will have to handle and ways of managing it. Again, this positions do not last forever. If you're lucky enough to be on a network show that lasts a long time, yes, you will have a relatively cushy or slightly cushier way in life than other people. But if you are most TV writers, again, like I mentioned at the top, most TV writers are not those network shows anymore. They're more the cable writers who work maybe four, six months at most a year. And even then they may not even get an episode. So no episode means no residual, but even if they do get an episode, maybe that episode never gets produced or takes multiple years before it gets produced and even longer before it airs. And so that residual check comes maybe half a decade later. Um, so all those things compound into you realizing it 
that as a TV writer, unless you're on a very specific kind of show, you will not make as much money as you think. Yeah, exactly. There are so many levels at which you can be a working TV writer. Like you said, the one I think a lot of people think of is somebody coming into a long-running network TV show and working their way up from staff writer to co-EP or EP on a show that runs for 10, 15 seasons on CBS or something like that and, and raking in all those residuals. But that's not really the norm anymore. Like you said, there's short cable rooms, there's streaming that has a whole different system for their payments and residuals and everything. And then you get to the point where you're doing stuff like mini rooms before a show is even ordered to air. And those might be six weeks or something. And then all of this is kind of under the, the assumption of WGA that at least is guaranteeing you a certain minimum in health care and pension and insurance and everything. But, you know, speaking as an animation writer, all almost all animation writing is covered by the Animation Guild instead. And they have a whole different set of fees, which are usually lower than Writers Guild fees. And much of the work in animation is actually freelance. You're not in a room full-time somewhere. Uh, you're instead getting an episode or two episodes scattered throughout the year and earning a certain amount for that. And it's nowhere near the same level as a full-time job week in, week out. Right. And that's why on top of, you know, the amount that you're actually paid on top of the gap year, gap months that you will be living through as a freelance writer, essentially, those things are why it is very important to save and understand financial planning. In fact, one of our earliest episodes of the podcast, PT16, you remember when we were in double digits? <laughs> PT16 was all about money management. And I remember at the time, I'm a big value investing person. And at the time I was talking about value investing, unbeknownst to me that five years later, everybody would be talking about GameStop and <laughs> all these insane value investing propositions. So really take a listen to that episode, but also do your own research. One episode of the podcast is not going to solve all your financial problems if you have any. But nonetheless, we really advocate for you to be cognizant of those issues, especially in terms of financial planning, budgeting, whatever works for you, be aware of those things. Yeah, if you'd listened to Alex back then and bought Bitcoin, you'd be billionaires by now. So. <laughs> No, but yeah, I think one of the reasons why some people think writers get paid a lot of money is because the rate per week or per episode or whatever is actually quite good. But then, then once you understand that that's only for 10 weeks out of the year, 15 weeks out of the year, and average it out, that's when it suddenly shoots much more down to earth. So that's why uh, I think a lot of people can be blown away at first and go, wow, I've never earned this much money in my life. This is fantastic. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a new car and I'm going to buy new clothes and I'm going to get an iPhone and I'm going to be making this much money forever. This I'm, I'm a whole new class level now. I'm, you know, that kind of thing. But it's unfortunately not really what happens. And if you go and do that, you're very quickly going to find yourself running out of money to pay the rent by the end of the year. Exactly. When you look at that paycheck, you should at least have it half. You should cut it in half and look at the amount. And then that may not even reflect the true amount because there's taxes and that 10% or 20% that hasn't been taken off. But because there's so few and far between jobs that you'll be going through, that amount instantly vanishes. And so that's why you got to put it safely aside as opposed to buying that new car as much as you want that Tesla. But, uh, you know, those stonks are not going to go sky high just yet. <laughs> so there are obviously resources out there um, to kind of, you know, budget uh, your stuff. And we've talked about this at a greater length. It's just in general, uh, being aware that even if the money seems really good right now, uh, you have to then figure that out over the course of how long you might not work for next. Uh, and one of our other former guests, Brittany Nichols, that recently had a Twitter thread about this, which was really informative. Just sort of to summarize it, you know, she was saying that not all writers are Audi driving, Nobu devouring maniacs. <laughs> the pay disparity, even between uh, one TV writer and another TV writer, can be quite a lot. And the working conditions can be a lot harsher than you would imagine. You know, like we said, there's a 
staff writer earning X amount of money or story editor is completely different to a showrunner or an EP and that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of these lower to mid-level writers are still very much middle class. They're not even making sort of six figures in a year sometimes. So definitely recommend checking that out and taking a look at uh, the reality of what it is to be a working writer financially. All right. So we've looked at some of the more practical realities of breaking into the industry and being a TV writer. But one of the big topics that we want to cover in this whole section, and we've hinted at before in past episodes, we want to dedicate this whole section to talk about mental health. Because when you are first starting out, and even if you're established, let's be honest, this whole industry is a roller coaster of emotions. And so you have to be ready for that roller coaster and you have to be self-aware and do a lot of self-work as a creative to be able to manage it. So let's talk a bit about that. And the first thing to mention at the top is that this industry, at least in my mind, from my experience, I believe strongly that this industry is a lot about perception for better and usually for worse. And so it's important to realize what is perception versus reality. A pretty immediate example are jobs that you may be fired from or that you may not hear back from and all those things. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to know the real reasons why you didn't get the job. Since you don't really get the truth, people just tell you why or even they don't answer. And conversely, you also hear plenty of stories about people being crazy or difficult to work with. And then you realize, oh, actually, it's an abuser gaslighting other people into making certain kind of people, quote unquote, crazy. And then we have a reveals about abusive behaviors and gaslighting and so forth. So a lot of this industry is about that dichotomy between perception versus reality. Now, why do I mention this? That's because when you're first starting out, you need to understand who you are as a person and how you position yourself in the ecosystem of this industry. And that means a lot of self-worth. That means a lot of understanding of yourself in a way that when you're first starting out, you don't necessarily have that ability because you will be constantly judged whether or not you want to be and your work will be constantly judged. And so you have to be ready and uh, strong enough to withstand all those things. Yeah, writers are often very good at cultivating a particular kind of image for themselves, whether that's online or in person or whatever it happens to be. And I mean, people in general, but particularly for writers whose careers are so reputation-based and they want to make it seem like they're always working on the next thing and they're doing something exciting and they've won all these awards. Now, whether you are an aspiring writer who's trying to break in and you're kind of posting about all of the competitions that you just placed in or you know the fellowship that you got or whatever, or you're a working writer who's kind of posting cryptic tweets about, oh my God, just got a big job and can't wait. You know, like you see this all the time and, and writing Twitter is, uh, you know, very niche in that way that everyone is kind of comparing themselves, like Alex said, to each other and saying, oh, I wish I had gotten that job. And you see that somebody's on a job and you're congratulating them. And maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, I wish that that's something that I had also gotten. So it, it can be really hard to compare yourselves to these idealized images that people are presenting. And you're not seeing the reality of, yeah, they finally just worked so hard for five years to get this job and put themselves through in the exact right position they needed to be to get it. They didn't just get it out of a pure luck or chance or coincidence. Absolutely. And there's no shame in not just not comparing yourself to other people, but also taking a step back from exposing yourself to those things. So for example, I 
am taking a break from social media and uh, that may impact my career to some level and my, uh, you know, my social awareness and uh, my social ability. However, I felt for my own mental health, it was important to take a step back. And obviously it's not just about the entertainment industry. There's plenty of a doom scrolling that's been going on. And so all of this needed to stop. And so I took a break from social media and so can you. There's no shame in cutting back Facebook for whatever reason, maybe because you know that Facebook is a terrible company, but either way, you can have ownership over those things in the same way that you have ownership over the scripts that you read or the relationships that you build, you have ownership over the relationships that you want to end, you know, the things that you want to put out into the universe. And I know that's a bit of, you know, a weird way of thinking about it, but it is true that you should not be comparing yourself against other people, which is one of the hardest things to do in this industry, but you should also be recognizing of where you are currently in that uh, grand rat race that we are in. That rat race is never ending. I can guarantee you that even, you know, J.D. Abrams and uh, Shonda Rhimes and uh, Ryan Murphy and all those people, they still have imposter syndrome occasionally. And they are still figuring out, okay, what is my next step to world domination as opposed to what is my next step to getting hired on this next gig? They have a different set of priorities, but they're still in their own little rat race. Some are happier than others. And so that's the deal that you're making when you're entering this industry. Is that the right race you want to enter? And if it is so, then you should realize that we are on our own little journey, as we said at the top, as opposed to comparing ourselves to this race versus that race. Yeah, there was sort of a, a trend going around on writer Twitter recently that was like harsh writing advice or something. And and one of the ones that particularly sparked a lot of conversation was from someone or other who said, uh, you know, your fellow writers are your competition. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think one of the really big messages that we have been trying to communicate here is that it's not about competing against other people and uh, using people to your advantage so that you can get what you want out of life. It is really, truly about making genuine relationships, embracing those connections with people and helping lift each other up to the places that you want to be and kind of making that a mutual thing where everybody is helping each other and supporting each other to kind of achieve their goals. And that's going to give you a much healthier mental outlook on this entire industry and this entire career. I don't think somebody who comes and approaches it from the perspective of uh, everyone who I claim are my friends or actually my competition and I'll screw them over to get my job is ever going to succeed. Absolutely. I could not echo this more. It's this mentality that, you know, this industry is a zero sum game. And the truth is some things, as we said, again, some things you can control, some things you cannot. And you should be maximizing everything you can control. It's easy to dismiss, okay, I didn't get this job or I can't break in because of X, Y, Z that you could control. And conversely, sometimes, you know, you may not be lucky in that particular show and, uh, you know, you may not be getting that specific break that you want, but that doesn't mean that this whole industry is out to get you. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're in competition with the person that got that position, right? If the genre is looking for a specific kind of writer, and you're not that person, then you're obviously not in competition, in direct competition with the person who ended up getting the job. That just means you are not the right fit for this particular position, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now you got to work on yourself to find, okay, what is the show that needs me? As opposed to, okay, what is the show that I need to compete for against other people? Uh, because this industry is nothing but competition in a way. You know, everybody wants to break in, but the competition is against yourself. And I think that's people not realizing that you have ownership over some things. Some things you don't. Some things are unfair, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of things you do have control over. And it's about realizing those things and empowering yourself 
to act upon those. Yeah, one of the most important and helpful things that you can be doing is to try and help play matchmaker, whether you're another writer or an executive or whatever your role is in the industry. If there's an opportunity that is perfect for somebody you know, amplify that and get it to them or recommend them, you know, refer them to that post, offer to introduce somebody to somebody else. Uh, Because like Alex said, the actual overlap between what jobs you and some other person are competing for is, is very, very minimal. So if you see that there is this perfect opportunity and you have somebody in mind who's a friend of yours, then you need to go out of your way to make that connection and help them out just out of the goodness of your heart because it's a nice thing to do. And because you're helping the right people find the right jobs rather than sitting there thinking, oh, how can I force myself this triangle into this square hole? Uh, (laughs) Be thinking who could actually be the right person for this. And then hopefully one day down the road, people remember that you did nice things for them and they might help you in return. But even if they don't, you should still do it (laughs) because that's just what you should do and help support each other. Exactly. And get forward. And now that note, you should also be finding your own support system. I think that's also a great point in terms of you know, you just mentioned the idea of helping uh, the people and introducing one person to the other. That doesn't mean you should negate yourself, right? You can still build that support system and surround yourself with people who will introduce you to other people in the same way that you are doing for them. And that's not necessarily having a transactional relationship. That's just finding positive, good people who will build you up in the same way that you are building them up and one-upping each other in a good way, obviously, in this case. And so finding that support system is very important. And that's obviously easier said than done. I'm not saying, you know, it's an easy thing than just posting on Twitter and finding that person. But not Nonetheless, it's something to be aware of, and it is doable. It is something that people should work towards in the same way that you are working towards writing your next sample and meeting such and such a manager. You should be looking towards building that support system. All right, so we've talked a bit about the perception versus reality aspect of this industry, but another part of it is our own internal perception versus reality. We always feel like we are on the clock, that we need to break in before I'm 20 and 30 and 40. And obviously those Hollywood reporter lists like 35 under 35 are not helping anybody with this. However, it is important to recognize that we are not on a timeline. Now, I understand the realities of this industry with the ageism and that we'll talk about in a second, but overall, it is also important to realize, as we keep repeating on this podcast, it's about the journey, not the destination, and that does include realizing and taking a break that you are not on a clock, you are on your own timeline if you want, but you are not competing against other people on that clock. Yeah, I mean, most people don't even know how old you are. Uh, there's sort of, you know, a period where it's like, I don't know, this person could be in their late 20s or they could be in their early 40s. It's like, no one's sitting there and comparing you to another writer and be like, well, they got their first staff writing job at 23 and you didn't get yours until you were 29, therefore they are the better writer. So I think that people kind of obsess over that just a little bit too much. And like Alex said, there's certainly some reality towards ageism in the industry and all that sort of thing. But I think that people really put far too much emphasis on what age they are when they break in or when they get their first job or any of that kind of stuff. People's times will come if you're doing the work, you're being persistent, you're putting yourself out there. And who knows, maybe you know, as we've mentioned time and time before, having a little bit more life experience when you do get into that room is going to benefit you. Right. And and to that point, I definitely believe that if, you know, you read in the trades, someone quote unquote breaking in or staffing and something or getting a show at the age of 21 or 22 or 23, I'm sure that will raise many eyebrows and think about, oh, what kind of privileged position they were in to get that job or that show. That's not to discredit their worth. Obviously, they got there in the first place. But it's actually maybe a reversed 
thing that you're getting out of it by saying, okay, actually, maybe we're not realizing and trying to understand and unravel this industry in many ways as we get, you know, older and older and more and more aware of society's uh, ills. But uh, that's the constant struggle that you're going against. And so you can't really judge a book by its cover or by its age. And even though some shorters, I'm sure, and especially in comedy rooms, uh, maybe Nick, you can talk more about this, do have a certain like ageism aspect to it. But I also know that's something that people are fighting against. It's not the default. Maybe 20 years ago, it was much more the default than it is now. And I think now it's much more uh, looked at as obviously a negative, but overall, it's better to have more experience than less. Yeah, for sure. And I think... Want the other kind of flip side of this whole breaking in in time and getting your career and whatever is that at a certain point, some people have worked in X amount of rooms through X amount of decades, and then they do find themselves running into this ageism thing where, oh, yeah, you're, you're too old for this show about uh, young kids in college or whatever, or, oh, you're, you're washed up or this or that. And, you know, there's even a whole committee that is dedicated to career longevity at the WGA, and they, they, they tackle a lot of these issues and these prejudices that people have because you, you might have a solid 20, 30 years uh, experience as a writer, and suddenly you find yourself unable to find these kind of jobs again. So there's that to look forward to as well. Yeah. uh, And I'll mention another thing on this whole idea of self-work and and self-perception. I think Joseph Campbell wrote a lot about, you know, the dichotomy between the perception of yourself, our own worst critic, versus yourself as society is projecting on you. And finding that balance is very difficult because we are only living our own experiences, obviously, and it's very hard to know how other people perceive us or how we want other people to perceive us and so forth. So I'll just briefly say, I'm not going to do a whole conference on Joseph Campbell here, but I would just look into Joseph Campbell's whole follow your bliss, the origins behind that mantra that uh, his whole work is based upon. And uh, the origins are mostly inspired by Sanskrit. So really go to the source there. But overall, I really feel like it's important to realize that dichotomy. I know it's a bit esoterical what I'm talking about here, but perception of ourselves is not quite the same as the perception of uh, society uh, is on ourselves. And there's a common refrain that, you know, nobody else thinks about you the same amount as you do by yourself. Once you leave the room, most people forget about you. I'm sorry to say. And uh, thinking otherwise is a bit of an ego boost as much as we want it to be. And so again, that distinction is very important to realize. Yeah. And for me, I think that brings us around to this conversation of we're getting kind of very broad and philosophical here, but uh, finding your bliss, like Alex said, and and finding the enjoyment in the work that you do, because there is always going to be some next level you want to get to, whether it's a rank in a writer's room, or it's running your own show, or getting an overall deal, or making a billion dollars, whatever it happens to be. It's very easy to get lost in that journey and constantly be looking for that end goal and never actually be happy with where you're at. I think a big part of that is not allowing your life to be entirely consumed by your work and putting your entire kind of ego and sense of self-worth on your success as a writer. Because like we mentioned, you're going to have your ups and downs. So you don't want to just fall into a deep depression every time you're not working as a writer and only feel good about yourself when you are. You need to really establish a balanced life for yourself where you can find fulfillment through other things like hobbies or relationships or whatever it may be outside of writing so that you can stay sane through this whole crazy up and down journey. Yeah. And that's another thing that's easier said than done. But overall, there are ways of mitigating you know, your life being consumed by work and so forth. One thing that I've been advocating for on this podcast is just you should celebrate your wins, whatever that win is. That win should not be binary as in, okay, I got staffed. That's a win. Obviously, that is a win, but there are multiple wins before that. You know, the point where you're finishing the first draft, 
That's a win. The point where you're getting read by an agent. That's a win. The point where the agent wants to meet with you. That's another win, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the way you celebrate those things, that's entirely up to you, but it's at least important to recognize that those are wins. Those are steps to that goal that you want or that you set yourself toward. And so those are ways of accepting that the work is not your life. You know, life isn't work, work isn't life. I don't know how that goes, but overall you should focus, like Nick mentioned, on other things outside of strictly writing, for example, that can give you solace, that can give you fulfillment in those ways. And again, that's a whole esoterical conversation to be had about what those are and what those mean to you. That's why we talk about self-work, right? Self-realization, those are things that you should be working towards. We can't really be prescriptive about what those things are to you, but it is important, again, to understand that those things do exist for everyone. And so finding those hobbies, those relationships, other ways of being fulfilled outside of literally getting staffed or literally getting that show sold or whatever version of that win is to you, that's important. And I think we are always focused on sort of the the very goal-oriented ideas in part because of society. I think America in particular is very focused on outward projection, on the fact that, all right, I've got this fancy car or I've got this fancy job or I'm making this money. And uh, we're all very consumerist in many ways. And I think that does translate to our own careers in a way where we're all thinking, okay, I need to do this or I fail. It's all or nothing. The reality is everything on that path is a win. Again, we're very much abstract here. We're going to be doing meditation at the end of this podcast, maybe. But uh, <laughs> I just think those are thoughts that are important to discuss. And I'm glad that we're doing this whole podcast just about those. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. And I found myself in a bit of a rut after my first staffing job and not knowing if or when the next job was going to come. I think it took me a year and a half to find my next paid writing work after that. And that's pretty standard for a lot of people. But, you know, I found myself obsessing over, oh, no, you know, I'm a failure year and people are going to think that I'm I'm not a good writer because I wasn't able to find another job right away. And, uh, you know, just all of these things that go through your head when really, like you said, Alex, you should be focusing on, oh my God, I've, (laughs) I had a job as a staff writer. I've written, I have credits on a TV show that are now airing. I had the privilege and the ability to be able to do this in the first place. And all of the, the other wins that led up to that point, whether it was getting your first job in the industry, finding a rep, getting your stuff out there, taking meetings with executives, finishing pilots, all of that kind of stuff. Those are all really great wins. And if you think, if you kind of change your perspective and think about what you, when you were 16 years old or 18 years old or whatever, wanting, craving this career in Hollywood, you would be thrilled by all the things that you've done so far. You're not going to be sitting there worrying about, oh no, I, I got one job writing for television, like my dream. And then it took me a little while to find the next one. So really changing your perspective on things will help you to celebrate those wins along the way and stop and enjoy yourself throughout your career rather than just always stressing over the next thing. Absolutely. And uh, on that, let's look at another way of helping your own mental health in this industry. And that is to understand your own social stamina and knowing your limits socially. Yeah, so there's a couple of aspects to this. One of them, I think, is just it's very easy to throw yourself into everything. You know, when we say always be hustling, a lot of people think that means that I need to spend every waking minute of every waking hour going to networking drinks and writing my pilot and not getting any sleep. And just if I'm not working for one single second of my life, then I'm a failure. And that's absolutely not the case. And, you know, there's a really big risk to that too. You could eventually uh, burn yourself out and hurt yourself longer term because you were not being able to kind of balance those things appropriately and make it sustainable. Absolutely. In the same way that there's no shame in cutting back social media or any anything like that. There's no shame in cutting back social contact. 
You don't need to go to networking events to be fulfilled, and you don't need to go to those events to build relationships. This is something we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast, this whole idea that real networking is actually relationship building. And so that is going to take some amount of work. We're realistic about that. But at the same time, that also means you don't have to machine fire everybody, metaphorically speaking, with uh, emails and uh, rendezvous or whatever, unless that's how you thrive, in which case go for it. But most people, most writers especially, are more introverted in their nature. And so they're not going to seek out that social contact. And that's fine to sometimes take a break, especially now with the pandemic. We sometimes also get a bunch of emails and I've declared a couple of times email bankruptcy in my own world where sometimes it's too much to answer to all those emails at once and you you don't want to answer. And trying to build back up that energy to answer those emails or to reach out to people, that's another way of helping yourself, of dealing with your own mental health. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everyone to everybody, right? You have your own limits. So be aware of that burnout. That doesn't necessarily mean the work burnout, but that also means the social burnout as well. Yeah, that's a really great point, Alex. And I think the further you get along in your career, the more there will be a demand for your time, whether that be work, whether it be people asking for drinks and coffees and things like that, or advice, whatever it is, you're going to, if you don't set uh, boundaries for yourself and limits for yourself to protect your own mental health, you're going to find yourself very quickly overwhelmed. You know, running this, this podcast is kind of our way of giving back to a lot of people because it is hard to sit there and individually answer everyone's questions via email or go and get a drink or a video chat or whatever with everybody who has questions about how do I break in? You know, we try our best to do that, but it's not always possible. And I think that it's important for you at whatever level you're at to be able to to say to people, hey, look, I'm sorry, but I'm just really busy. I've got a lot going on and I don't think I have time for this. Maybe check back in with me in a month. I might be less busy or can we chat about it over email or something instead and just kind of find your limits and set those boundaries so that uh, you preserve your own mental health. And that goes not just only for social interactions, but other commitments that you kind of make, whether it's extracurriculars that you're involved in, maybe you help run uh, some sort of committee that hosts the events or a sport that you do with other people or whatever, anything where you're taking on a lot of time out of your day and a big commitment, ask yourself, are you working yourself too ragged and, and running your time too thin to be able to really focus on what is most important to you just because you feel like you need to be active and you need to be doing something. All right. Well, on that note, let's talk about mental health itself. Uh, And uh, one thing that we would be remiss not to mention is obviously if we're talking about mental health, we are also talking by extension about mood related disorders like anxiety or depression. And one thing to emphasize here is that you should seek treatment. You should not let those anxieties or depressions go untreated. There's this myth of the artist must suffer and that's how we create great, amazing art. Spoiler alert, that's BS. There's other ways of uh, creating great art than literally suffering. And mental health is as important as physical health, if not more so. Now, what I mean by seek treatment, I don't necessarily mean go pop some pills somewhere or whatever. I mean, find the treatment that works for you. I know that it can take some courage and especially going past that ego to seek things out like therapy or um, medication, if that is uh, more what you need. But the sooner you work towards helping yourself the sooner you will start to feel better. And let me tell you, you deserve to help yourself. (laughs) This is very coachy of me, but you do deserve to help yourself and seek that treatment. And that does include things like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which are 
primarily for mood-related disorders. But if you are not familiar with CBT, CBT is a pretty effective way of uh, treating or coping with depression and anxiety. So if you've never looked into it, at least do some research to learn more about it. But overall, the point here is that whatever treatment or ways of dealing with anxiety or depression you seek and are looking for, all this, much like with your career, all of that is a process. It's ongoing. Right? Nobody goes to the gym once a year and expect results. And uh, conversely, you also don't work out really hard every day for one month and then never again your entire life. It's a process. It's ongoing. So be aware of your own mental health, quite literally. If you have depression, anxiety, seek treatment, and that will only help yourself, your work, and career. Absolutely, yeah. I think I echo those sentiments entirely. And uh, also, you know, even just in other ways, building yourself a support network, a social support network of friends, of loved ones, people that you can talk to, share things with, and feel supported by so that you don't kind of feel so alone. So whether it is professional help or whether it is just sort of, you know, other things around you in your life that make you feel better, if it could be going to the gym, it could be whatever, making sure you take the time for that. In fact, we had a really great episode on this. I think it was PT160 with Roche Jeffrey and April Shi, where they talked about the things that were helpful for them, meditation, therapy, uh, different things like that. Because it is, you know, this is the entire point of this episode. Being a writer isn't easy. It is a stressful career. It is an uncertain career. And it is, uh, your mental health is one of the most important things that you can protect so that you can have a sustainable long-term career as a writer in this industry. Absolutely. And uh, to that very point, Self-work is a win-win. The first win is obviously yourself. You're helping yourself, but you're also helping your own work in the process. If you understand yourself, if you are doing a lot of self-work, then you can use all that knowledge in your own writing. The whole write when you know thing, as we've said again, time and time again, is about how you feel, where you've perceived all these emotions and transferring those emotions into a form that other people can relate to. Uh, and so that is what self-work, something like therapy is able to give you those tools to understand and process all those events in your life or certain events, however deep you want to go there, and really channel those emotions and that understanding in your own work, in your own writing, and propel it even further. Yeah, and that brings us to uh, one really important topic to all of this, which is, is there a time when it is appropriate to give up or to make a career change if you realize at some stage that maybe TV writing is not for you or you'd be better suited for something else? Yeah, that is a very important question that everyone, I think, should ask themselves, especially if they are in this in-between period or gray area or suffering mentally and so forth. Sometimes that winning move is not to play, as uh, the movie War Games taught us. Uh, your relationship with work or your career or your dream is the same as any kind of relationship, uh, meaning it can also be an abusive relationship. It can also lead to trauma. It can also lead to your own unwellness. And so recognizing those things and then deciding whether or not you want to keep pursuing that rat race or that journey, or if there's something else better for your own sanity, that's for you to understand and seek. And so that's not something that we can really give you advice on specifically, whether you listening to this very episode should give up, but it's more something that you should work towards and understand where are you on this path? Are you more towards the end or are you more towards the beginning of understanding, okay, actually, maybe I should move aside or I should take a break from writing and pursue other things. Or maybe I should double down because I haven't really ducked too much into the surface of why I'm doing what I'm doing. All those questions are going to influence the true question of whether or not you should give up and change careers. Yeah, exactly. And I would certainly not recommend 
to anyone whose dream truly is to be a TV writer to give up too early just because it's hard or because there's a lot of work to it or it might not work out. I think that if this is genuinely what you love and what you want to be doing, persistence is a huge part of success. I've said that over and over. So um, certainly don't give up at the first possible opportunity, exhaust all of your options and that sort of thing. But you know, we want everyone to know that it is okay if you realize that this isn't for you or that the process to go through to get there isn't worth it or uh, you know, you've gotten your foot in the door and it's just too stressful to continue, that it's perfectly acceptable. It's not sacrilegious to say, you know what, enough. And there are many, many other things you can do in your life that will bring you happiness and fulfillment, or maybe you even come back and try again some other time and you just need a break for a while. That's fine too. There's any number of things, you know, you might realize that you were working as an executive and that's actually much more rewarding for you. And uh, you like the stability of that. Fantastic. Everyone has their own journey and their own path and their own decisions. And only you can decide what's right for you, but there's absolutely no shame in deciding that maybe this isn't worth it. Absolutely. There's uh, this theory or this idea or thought experiment that every 10 years, we are a completely different person. And I think that stems a bit from the ship of uh, Thessalus thought experiment where one piece of the ship gets replaced. After X amount of time, the whole ship is not made out of the same material as the first version of the ship. And the same is true with our own body and our own cells being regenerated and so forth. But it is true that in terms of personality, our wants, our desires do change over time. And it's important to recognize those things. Like Nick said, there's no shame in stepping back. If that's what will make you happy, there's no objective way of deciding whether, you know, this thing is going to make you happy or this is going to make you sad and so forth. That's for you to figure out. And uh, it is true that we change, we evolve. Times are a changing, as uh, they would sing. Yeah, it definitely kind of brings us to a broader philosophical discussion like we touched on earlier. There's this whole thought experiment about if you had a button that you could press and it would just flood your brain with positive chemicals and make you happy forever, would you just sit there in a seat pressing it until you die? I think most people, the answer would probably be no, because to them, there's more to life than just that feeling of happiness. There are other things that they want to be doing and need to be doing to feel fulfilled with the rest of their lives. So that's up to each of us to judge and decide on. But, uh, you know, bear all of that in mind when kind of assessing uh, where you are with your TV writing journey. And for many of you, the decision might be, yes, I just need to persist. I need to keep working hard and eventually it will pay off. And for others, it might be, hey, you know what? I gave it a shot and there's something else out there that's going to be more fulfilling for me, even if you don't know what it is yet. All right. Uh, we haven't done this in a little while, but uh, it uh, felt important to do a whole section or a small section, at least on resources that we can give our listeners. Yeah. So on this particular topic, I feel like there aren't a ton of readily available resources because to be honest, it's something people don't like to talk about too much. I think a lot of people do prefer to live in the glamour and the appearance of, oh, I'm a writer and uh, this is all fantastic and my life is great and I'm constantly <laughs> working on a million fantastic projects. But you know, we wanted to get to the bottom of this and the reality and, and make it very clear for people what uh, the darker side of working as a TV writer can be as well as the many benefits. So all of that said, there are a few things we'd like to uh, refer you to. Yes, uh, I definitely concur on all those things. Uh, the first thing to mention are the WJ resources, especially if you are a member of the Guild. Look on their website for relevant committees like the Career Longevity Committee that we mentioned earlier in this episode, as well as other resources. They have plenty of resources, especially if you are a member of the Guild. And I will also post in the show notes a whole section, a whole post about mental health resources for Angelinos. If you live in LA or LA County or SoCal, there's a lot of resources on that list that are relevant to you 
And I do mean you, whether, you know, you are in a crisis right now and need help now, or it's more about finding ways of managing stress or finding a therapist or tips and resources to finding a therapist. If you cannot afford private therapy or telehealth services, all of that information will be on the link that we will be posting in the show notes. Absolutely. And one other resource we wanted to point to is another podcast called Happier in Hollywood. And that is hosted by two TV writers, Sarah Fain and Elizabeth Kraft. And uh, they do actually focus a lot on exactly what we're talking about right now, more of the human side of uh, the entertainment industry and how you can stay happy and healthy and productive uh, as a writer. Absolutely. We could not recommend this podcast more. It is everything that this episode was about and much more. So take a listen to that. Absolutely. Well, thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode, including all the resources we mentioned at paperteam.co slash 209. Uh, as always, I'm on Twitter. Well, not as much as I mentioned before, but if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at TV Calling. And I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, or questions for this podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week will be our Paper Tease Revisited episode, where we follow up with some of our past winners and teasers that were aired on the show and see uh, what's going to happen since then for those people. Excellent. Uh, Tune in next week for that. We'll see you then.